Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with Dr. Michael A. Varney about his book titled A Great and Rising Nation, Naval Exploration and Global Empire in the Early U.S. Republic that's just come out from the University of Chicago Press, um, that examines the early decades of the United States, America's imperialist naval aspirations and expeditions, which is really quite interesting because this is um, perhaps outside of a lot of the historical narratives we might be familiar with. So, Michael, I'm so pleased that you're here with us to tell us about your book. Oh, well, Miranda, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I appreciate your interest and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Could you start us off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and an explanation of why you decided to write the book? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Well, as you noted, I'm Michael Verney. I'm an assistant professor of history at Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. And um, I wanted to, to write this book because it reflected what I see as the real international history of the United States, that the, the history that I uh, was raised with and was taught in, in school really emphasized simply the domestic elements of American history, the political engagements, the social transformations, especially of early American history. And really until I got into the World Wars period, both in, in high school and to, to a certain extent in college, I really didn't get a sense the United States was highly interested or involved in the rest of the world. And so if we fast forward to when I'm thinking about a dissertation topic at the University of New Hampshire, uh, by this point, I have been introduced to the marvels of maritime and naval history, the way in which uh, suddenly American history had really kind of cracked open, that new horizons were open for me in thinking that, wow, the United States actually, and a lot of U.S. citizens and actors, are pretty darn engaged with the rest of the world, uh, far more than I anticipated or had been educated about earlier on. And so in graduate school, I was able to explore that even more, and I have uh, mentors, uh, Elijah Gould, Jeffrey Bolster, uh, Kirk Dorsey, Jessica Lepler were all people who really uh, played a big influence in, in opening up my horizons to this international side of American history. And I came across the fact that there were 17 exploring expeditions dispatched by the U.S. Navy before the Civil War uh, all over the world. And they went from the North Pacific, the South Pacific, to the Holy Land in the 1840s, to the Arctic, uh, portions of the Antarctic, uh, to West Africa, all throughout South America. And these struck me as potentially being the the global side to the more westward expansion-focused coin of Manifest Destiny, that actually Manifest Destiny is truly something that's happening uh, not just in the North American West, but also... Uh, all around the the world through these Navy expeditions. So I I saw an opportunity with a study of these uh, to be able to make an intervention, both in terms of thinking about global empire far earlier than is conventionally thought, and then also to uh, make an argument about the government's role in overseas expansionism, that even there's kind of a, a narrative that yeah, there might be sort of global imperialism in the early republic. And we have wonderful scholars like Emily Conroy Crutz or Brian Rouleau or Dane Morrison who have examined uh, this in terms of private actors. That, yeah, private actors have expansionist ambitions like missionaries and merchants um, and ordinary working class sailors. 
But I saw an opportunity to make an argument that the federal government is actually deeply invested in federal uh, global imperialism, state-directed global imperialism, far earlier than it's conventionally thought with the Spanish-American-Cuban-Filipino War of 1898 era uh, there. So I, I saw a number of opportunities as an aspiring scholar and graduate student to write about this that really connected with some deeply held interests from earlier in my educational experience. Wonderful. Thank you for tying all those threads together to give us a foundation for discussion. Um, I'd love to sort of start off with this idea of kind of why there were so many expeditions. I mean, why were there any expeditions at all? Um, And you talk about this, one of the motivations being about essentially kind of wanting to sit at the big kids table, right? Being part of um, being perceived as a great nation, how did exploration and expeditions have anything to do with that perception? Yeah, wonderful question. Um, let me take a step back and sort of address uh, initially this this question about American nationalism, that um, it used to be that all of the highly nationalistic, somewhat bombastic rhetoric of the early republic was taken at face value, that, yeah, Americans believe that they uh, are are special. Maybe they don't even need to sit at the big kids' table. Uh, they are truly exceptional, and and uh, they they know themselves as such. Modern day scholars have been looking at some of this uh, overly braggadocious rhetoric from early uh, American Republicans, and they really come to the have come to the conclusion that that there's actually quite a bit of an inferiority complex and quite a bit uh, of concern that's uh, being expressed there, that that is trying to cover up uh, a sense that they may not truly be equal. And if you look back at the, the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson's very clear that the goals of the American Revolution are twofold. On one level, uh, separation, home rule, uh, but also a phrase that, that my mentor Elijah Gould used for, for his book, Among the Powers of the Earth, to be considered um, among the powers of the earth, to, to get to the, the separate but equal station uh, that uh, the laws of nations still provide. That, that's a rough paraphrase. Um, so both separation, but also equality are the goals for American nationhood. And there's a number of ways potentially to achieve that. So when I was doing sort of my historiographical research and also primary source research, I was thinking about uh, what goes into the term great power. What does it mean to be a great power in the period? And what I kind of came up with is that uh, there's really three somewhat overlapping, but still distinctive components of being a great nation in the early and mid 19th century. And that's developmental strength, which is having uh, a booming economy uh, and also raw military might, that those two things can be joined together, Uh, that there was uh, a sort of a civilizational or a cultural component that not only were great powers supposed to be prosperous and mighty, but they were also supposed to be um, genteel, and they were supposed to contribute to sort of Western civilization as it was considered through various different measures. But but science is really big for there. And then finally, they had to be recognized formally as a great power by other great powers. Uh, and that comes with an expectation of playing great power politics in Europe and in the Ottoman Empire. So Americans didn't, even some of the, there's a few outliers, but by and large, there's a consensus that the U.S. doesn't want to have uh, a massive military, either naval or, or army, um, that it, it doesn't want to get into roped into too many uh, foreign entanglements in terms of uh, 
diplomacy and political alliances with Europe. Uh, but they definitely wanted the respect that the great powers of Europe afforded to each other. And if you didn't want to have a great booming military, and if you didn't want to uh, roll up your sleeves and get embroiled in great power politics in the old world, the so-called old world, I should say, then one uh, potential measure would be go heavy on the cultural civilizational side. So ever since uh, the Enlightenment and, and uh, Captain Cook, there was a sense that science had been transformed from um, into sort of a heroic enterprise that dignified men and nations alike. And uh, I call this sort of a transnational empire of science that was an expectation for uh, people of uh, genteel status, but also of, of nations to be able to contribute into that. So there's a sense that there's this transnational empire of science that all great civilized nations by Western standards are supposed to contribute to, and that they're not supposed to uh, free ride upon others' contributions, that part of uh, taking of the bank of, of increasing scientific knowledge uh, was a requirement that you contribute to that. And because the British, in particular, Royal Navy, but the French do a, do a, invest in this quite a bit, and even the, uh, the Russians do and the, the Austrians do as well, uh, invest in these global voyages of discovery to map out uh, the cartography of the globe, to map out resources and peoples, there was a, a real sense that this was one of the more visible activities for the great powers and that the U.S. could U.S. Navy could embark in similar enterprises. And they were highly visible in the sense that they were widely covered in the press, both in Europe and also the United States, uh, that these narratives frequently produced, uh, excuse me, these expeditions uh, frequently produced narratives about their uh, adventures overseas that were widely uh, purchased and consumed at home, that there are scientific volumes and there are often scientific specimens brought home from these as well that could go to museums and could appeal to the kind of civilization or cultural maturity of these, these powers. So these explorationists, as I call them, these are supporters of U.S. naval exploration early on. They see this as a vehicle to achieve what Jefferson lays out uh, as a goal of the American Revolution to have uh, as a recognition of equality with the, the powers of the earth. So I hope that gives you some, some answer to, to a really good question. Definitely. Um, I think there's a lot for people to be curious about. Um, and this is a good moment, therefore, to note that Unfortunately, um, obviously, this interview is not going to go into as much detail as the book does. So for more detail about all the different explorations and kinds of the ins and outs, and particularly the characters involved in some of them, um, the book will be the place to go for that. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next question, because you did helpfully explain sort of the case for exploration. Um, but as you detail in the book, it, it's really not that simple in terms of kind of getting everyone on side. Not everyone was persuaded by these arguments. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about kind of how explorationists were able to get sort of the organization and the finance to kind of make these dreams reality? Yeah, no, wonderful. And then that gets at some of the architecture of of the book. Um, so the first chapter deals with this first failed push to launch the Navy on this global exploring expedition crusade in the 1820s. Uh, and I argue in that, uh, that it, it does not succeed 
um, partly just because President John Quincy Adams, who was the first president to uh, suggest uh, a uh, naval exploring expedition of the scope that we're talking about uh, in in this book and in this talk, partly because he's he's not very popular, but also because he uh, and a, a key ally, uh, a man named Jeremiah Reynolds, um, were unable to uh, really win over a, a, a very clear constituency to translate their visions into reality. And what they failed to do is to translate uh, more of a, an aristocratic, uh, Europeanized vision of this empire of science uh, into a more democratic or Republican, uh, I, I use the term empire of knowledge, that Jeremiah Reynolds in particular, who's a fascinating character in his own right, but this uh, Ohio school teacher, a newspaper editor, who really gets infatuated with voyages of exploration, and he wants to be um, essentially the U.S. version of Alexander von Humboldt. So he embarks on a uh, a self-appointed mission to be sort of the prophet that delivers, and he actually calls himself a prophet, uh, to deliver the United States to its explorationist destiny, that uh, he tried to translate the empire of science into a more democratic, uh, working-class uh, middle-class empire of knowledge founded on all of these um, mariners in the South Seas, these whalers and sealers, uh, and to make a case that the United States could lay claim to a, a position in Europe based on this expanded notion of empire of knowledge and the U.S. should contribute to this uh, expansive empire of knowledge. And I argue that, that that effort to translate an empire of science into empire of knowledge, that fails in the 1820s. So we see a bill go through the House of Representatives in 1828 to, to support a, a Navy expedition to the South Pacific, but it fails in the Senate in 1829. And my argument is uh, essentially that the promise of European recognition and glory is compelling. It gets some traction, uh, but it's not fully enough. And so the first chapter is about failure, but the other chapters are about success in the sense of uh, how these explorationists began appealing to very real interests to key constituencies in the white body politic. So chapter two is all about how to bring Jacksonian Democrats on board, uh, particularly through a promise that the uh, Navy could support overseas capitalism and Jacksonian political economy in the South Seas. Chapter three is about getting the, the middle class, uh, particularly the, the aspiring um, touristic literate middle class to be invested in these kinds of voyages. Chapter four uh, turns to evangelicals and how can you get evangelicals to see the benefit of naval exploration. And one way to do that is to send the the Navy to the Holy Land to prove scientifically that the Bible uh, is actually a little truth and to have a scientific survey of the Holy Land by the U.S. Navy in the late 1840s. Uh, The 1850s, how do you get pro-slavery expansionists and enslavers on board, and the way you do that is to, to uh, promise that naval exploration could open up potential new slave territories. So the architecture of the book is that, yeah, glory is really important. The last chapter turns back to the issue of European recognition and glory, uh, but really to fully appeal uh, to um, the citizens who had, and statesmen who had the power, they had to uh, make these very practical commitments uh, in the ways that I sort of detailed those. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I'm glad you sort of outlined a bit of the book because we're probably not going to be able to get to all of it. Um, But that gives people a taste of kind of where the details are to explore further. Um, So you've mentioned already, obviously, that the book looks at uh, quite a few expeditions. 
But I want to ask about really sort of uh, two, perhaps in particular. Um, the first being the XX. So given that this is an audio medium, that is EX space EX, um, rather than just the two Xs of the letters by themselves. Can you tell us about what this was? Why was it significant? Yeah, sure, sure. The XX actually takes up like the first half of the book. Um, so uh, I mean, so I that... can understand why it was fascinating to read about. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. It was fascinating to write, and there's so much more to be written about it. So any uh, aspiring graduate students or other uh, colleagues out there who are interested in this, there's plenty of room um, to, to write more. But um, yeah, the, the XX is short for the United States Exploring Expedition, and this was the first of these. So I, I mentioned there's going to be 17 uh, by the start of the Civil War. Uh, this was the first one, which is why it had this, this very generic name. Uh, but But... Thank goodness, contemporaries themselves actually shortened it to simply XX uh, there. And that's very, very helpful for uh, for these discussions and helpful for my writing. So the United States Exploring Expedition was a pretty, pretty massive uh, mission uh, that uh, circumnavigated the globe between 1838 and 1842. It paid close attention to uh, the Pacific world. And it was really an effort to support uh, U.S. commerce, what I call the empire of commerce, with, and they call the empire of commerce uh, too, by the way. And then secondarily, an, an empire of science, of or empire of knowledge, as Jeremiah Reynolds calls it. Um, so what they were predominantly doing was that they were addressing a, a series of needs based on a pretty ex- rapidly expanding whaling industry in particular, but also China traders as well, <clears throat> that as these... Um, American vessels are going out into the South Pacific. They are finding that there uh, are are inadequate charts, that vast reaches of the South Pacific are uncharted by Western means. And there's indigenous societies have um, fascinating ways uh, and and really um, intriguing ways of navigating themselves. But these were not these te- techniques were not known by uh, by American navigators, um, and that they were finding uh, that there was quite a bit of shipwreck. Uh, for whaling vessels and for China trading vessels. Uh, and therefore, um, there was a, a call to shore up that part of the American economy. Um, so the United States Exploring Expedition invested heavily in charting and surveying. Uh, it also engaged heavily in both diplomatic and, and military operations in regards to indigenous Oceanian polities, especially in the South Pacific. Uh, and sometimes responding with real bloodthirsty, almost genocidal levels of violence against indigenous societies that either harmed the XX or had been accused of of, uh, of harming American uh, mariners. Um, they were also collecting uh, scientific specimens, and they actually con- collected tens of thousands of them. So they had about 10,000 botanical specimens they brought back to the United States, over 3,000 shells, uh, 4,000 anthropological specimens, which actually included human remains, by the way. Um, and that, that number, the 4,000, uh, one of the curators at the Smithsonian says that that is uh, a third larger than the total from Captain James Cook's three Pacific voyages combined. So this is a, an immense amount of scientific materials. Uh, but predominantly, it was an effort to support an empire of, of commerce, um, sometimes through, well, oftentimes through charting. And they come back with of charts for 249 uh, charts that they would they drafted and sold at cost at U.S. custom houses, um, and were very useful. And we know I found all these letters from mariners and ship captains either requesting letters or uh, 
discussing how incredibly helpful they are in being able to navigate things like the Fijian Islands. So either by chart uh, or through treaty, and they signed treaty with treaties with various indigenous polities in the South Pacific, uh, opening up these areas to American commerce or trying to to protect and sort of govern American commerce, or uh, through uh, what they conceived of as judicial violence or, or violence where that are designed to produce a particular um, judicial effect in terms of actually governing um, the South Pacific as an extension of the American economy and governing it by, by violence. That is, indigenous societies trespassed against certain norms. Uh, they would uh, they would suffer the, the real violent consequences of that uh, by the, the new police force for the American economy in the South Pacific, the U.S. Navy. Uh, they also are, are involved in westward expansion, which I talk about a little bit in the book, uh, and I'd like to talk about a little bit more in, in my second book. Uh, but they chart uh, a, a good reach of the Pacific, North American Pacific coast, especially the Northwest coast uh, as well. And so historians have, have also uh, argued that uh, westward by sea might be the better way to understand westward expansion and manifest destiny is actually a lot of these early accounts of of uh, the West Coast and thinking about the promise of California is actually the maritime perspective and not necessarily the <clears throat> the terrestrial landed perspectives. So that's a that's a little bit about uh, an overview anyway of, of mm-hmm. the XX, um, and then I certainly we can we can talk more about uh, other aspects of it as well. Well, I think you touched on quite a few of the aspects and intersections that I think were particularly interesting, kind of the cartographic piece with the shipwrecks, but also then the conflict with indigenous society um, and also sort of how capitalism and empire play into what might at first sound like sort of a very narrow um, scientific remit of go map these things so we stop crashing into them. It's like, okay, but why are you mapping them? <laughs> what, what is the intent once those maps exist? So I think um, you very helpfully drew those pieces together, um, obviously in the book and also in that answer. Um, so I might, in fact, move on to another expedition or series of expeditions. Um, instead of going west from the United States, going south and going particularly to this idea of um, race and not just imperial expansion, but um, racial imperial expansion, really. Um, How was naval exploration involved in ideas of using South America to further American slavery? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, Race is a a really big theme in the book that shows up in a lot of the the chapters. And uh, certainly it's important for the XX uh, as well. But yes, uh, the, the, the fifth chapter studies a series of Navy expeditions to South America uh, that I argue uh, are all looking for, for future slave territories. And they're happening in the 1850s at a, at a particular moment where um, the future of slavery in the Union is, is uh, being challenged and being, uh, being questioned. So probably the, the most important character for that chapter is uh, a fellow named Matthew Fontaine Morey. And Maury is, is really well known in uh, maritime circles and history of science circles as the father of oceanography. So he was this lieutenant in the U.S. Navy uh, who nearly sailed on the XX, actually, but he had a, a stagecoach accident uh, before he was to embark. So he didn't embark on the XX. Um, and instead, he became the director of the Naval Depot of Charts and Instruments and the director of the Naval Observatory. And he committed himself to improving the empire of commerce through uh, 
meteorological data and through oceanographic data. Uh, so he invested very heavily in, in those things. Uh, but he was also, um, you know, originally from Tennessee and uh, settled in, in Virginia and somebody who was <clears throat> deeply committed to slavery and to slavery's future. And uh, from his desk in Washington, D.C., around 1850, with the compromise of 1850, he's really sensing that the opportunity to expand slavery into the North American West is decreasing, that he's very conscious of increasing uh, Northern, and especially white resistance to the expansion of slavery in the West. And so he's looking for other regions where uh, slavery might be expanded. And, and in particular, he uh, urges the South to look South uh, and to the deep, deep South of, of Brazil uh, and the Amazon in particular. And so he, he is able in his position, he is a very influential position in Washington, he's very well respected, uh, to dispatch his brother-in-law, William Lewis Herndon, uh, another lieutenant in the Navy, uh, to go with a past midshipman named Lardner Gibbon and to go down to descend the Amazon River from its source to its mouth and to uh, write a, a report or a narrative that would suggest that the Amazon is perfect for uh, colonization of, of enslavers and their uh, enslaved persons to found uh, American pro-slavery colonies in, in Brazil. And of course, Brazil itself was a slaveholding empire, a lot like the United States. Uh, and so Mori uh, is, is confident that this will this will all work out. Um, the Brazilians, because of uh, the necessities of the empire of science and of contributing to the empire of science, they allow this exhibition to go forward. They don't feel that they have the uh, <clears throat> the rhetoric to be able to prevent this because they want to appear themselves as a, as a genteel nation. And actually one of the uh, one of the books I looked at, the Library of Congress, was a, a book that the Brazilian government gave to the American government, uh, a scientific volume about the birds of Brazil. So they, they want to appear like a, a modern, so-called civilized Western nation, great Western nation. So they say yes to this, but they know exactly what Mori is really, really up to. Mori was, um, had no shortage of enthusiasm uh, in, in ways that uh, you know, are rightfully disturbing to us today. Uh, but he he really confidently believed that that this vision would would unfold, and that Brazil and he likens Brazil to Japan a lot in his correspondence. Uh, that Brazil was another closed empire that had to be opened up, and one way to do that is to increase political pressure on Brazil uh, to be able to first open the Amazon River Valley to navigation, to foreign navigation, because it it was closed by the Brazilian government, and then secondly to allow. Uh, there to be steamship lines between the United States, southern port to the United States and Brazil, and to allow for colonies uh, of uh, U.S. white slaveholders with their enslaved persons to go down into the, the Amazon rainforest. Uh, so he very consciously tried to do that. Um, and Brazilians know exactly what he's what he's up to. And so they, they work very hard behind the scenes in South America to prevent their, their Spanish-speaking neighbors from uh, opening any of their river systems to uh, American commerce or to particularly to American colonization. Um, and they never open up the Amazon. They never sign a treaty uh, to, with the United States allowing them to have this kind of colonial enterprise. So they know exactly what's what's going on. Uh, and there's an awful lot of, of abolitionists in the North who know exactly what's happening uh, as well, including Frederick Douglass, who's a critic uh, of this. 
So Mori uh, was one case, but then I also discussed that there were uh, two other expeditions to uh, the Rio de la Plata region of Paraguay and Argentina, um, and further south in South America, uh, that were led by a protege, someone who worked uh, with Maury in Washington, another Navy Lieutenant, Thomas Jefferson Page. Uh, and he takes, this is a, these are far larger expeditions, he has a, a war steamer, the USS Waterwitch, where he's exploring uh, the Rio de la Plata, the Paraguay River, the Parana River, between 1853 and 1856, and then again between 1859 and 1860. And I argue that that expedition was also looking uh, for slave territories, potentially slave territories, although Page kind of learns, I think, from Maury's mistakes and is a lot more coded. But if you know the code for pro-slavery expansionist, to me it's, it's very clear that that's exactly what Page was looking for as well. And this is one of the helpful things, of course, at, of looking at so many different expeditions and getting into the details of the papers the way that you have is you can read the code and then you can break it and explain it to the rest of us. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, ideally, yes. So similarly, um, I'd love for you to sort of take us into a bit of code or maybe a bit of behind the scenes, um, because certainly coming from the UK, um, where the Arctic exploration is definitely still part of um, the taught history, um, I admit I wasn't really expecting it to turn up in a book about American naval exploration. Um, But you, in fact, make a pretty convincing argument that Arctic exploration Um, was not just something that the U.S. was involved in, but played a not insignificant role in um, helping along U.S.-U.K. relations? Yeah. Tell us about that. That was um, a a real pleasure to to write about and to to study, um, and something that I I also didn't fully anticipate myself until I get into the sources with it. Uh, But this is the last chapter, and it turns back uh, to that foundational issue uh, for the book of winning European esteem, um, as, and there is a there is actually a real practical benefit to it, uh, in the sense that the U.S. Navy partners with a private merchant, a man named Henry Grinnell, and Henry Grinnell uh, was uh, a very very prominent merchant from New York City who had real close connections with British merchants and with the British Empire. So, for example, he, he was responsible for establishing a packet service between New York City and Liverpool. Uh, and I, I sort of suggest that he had this entangled, to use Elijah Gould's phrase, entangled uh, mercantile community uh, that he was very deeply invested in. And it's clear that from his uh, his letters and his correspondence, he uh, thought of white Americans, white Britons, as, as very close kindred peoples who should never come to blows. And then the, throughout the 1840s and 1850s, but especially the mid-1850s, there's some war scares uh, between the, the British Empire and the United States in regards to uh, Latin America and potential U.S. expansion to Latin America through the through thrillabustering uh, and U.S. resentment over the support that uh, the British were providing to peoples like the Mosquito Indians in the, uh, in the middle of, of Central America. And so Grinnell... Uh, is watching these war tensions and he's very reluctant to see the two countries empires go to war and so one of the things i argue is that he sees arctic exploration as a way to to build a greater camaraderie and uh and greater esteem and goodwill between between both nations so he invests heavily in that for that reason um i uh i don't know if i i'll say too much more about that chapter because it's probably 
my favorite chapter, even though all your chapters are kind of like your children and it's hard to pick a favorite, but um, it's probably my favorite and it's the last chapter of, of the book. And I, if you want to learn more about what happens in the Arctic, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, I think that's definitely an interesting overview of it uh, without giving too many details away. Um, so I want to, as you said, it was kind of towards the end of the book. So obviously uh, my questions, therefore, are slightly coming to the, their end. Well, we'll see. Because um, I, I wanted to ask about, well, th- this sounds almost like the explorations are going from strength to strength, right? Um, expanding cartographic knowledge in the West, enabling all sorts of capitalistic and imperialistic things. Um, yes, some failed um, political things in South America, but expeditions still went ahead um, and all sorts of things in the Arctic that not only showed sort of scientific development and commercial um, arrangements, but also improved diplomatic relations with a great power. And yet, uh, I think probably one of the reasons that this particular history was not hugely well known is that it stops. So how and why after all this expansion, all these expeditions, all this popular press, how and why did it stop? Great. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm happy to go in on that. Um, well, the, the short answer is the, is the Civil War, as, as so much for early American history. Uh, the Civil War ends up um, heavily damaging and, and really crippling in a way that, that – uh, is never fully recovered from really dealing a mortal wound to this antebellum global empire of commerce in the Pacific world. So, um, you know, the, the, the Navy and, uh, unionists were sinking the, uh, portions of the U S railing fleet in the Harbor of Charleston, South Carolina to blockade Confederates. And this is a so-called stone fleet. They're sinking these old whaling vessels in the Harbor there, um, there's uh, Confederate commerce raiders like the CSS Alabama or the Shenandoah that are hunting down American whaling ships, Yankee whaling ships to the Pacific. Um, and uh, we really see as a result of that, a, a decline of the whaling industry and blue water commerce in general. So it's actually around the civil war period that maritime historians will tell you that, that uh, the U S merchant Marine begins to switch uh, it, what flags it's registering under. Uh, so flags of convenience, that's so common today for the modern day shipping industry, that that has uh, antecedents in the Civil War period as uh, Union merchants are trying to protect their uh, their cargo and registering their, their vessels under neutral, uh, flags of neutral nations. Um, so the whaling industry tries to rebound. Uh, by this point, it's it's pretty already overextended because it's it's mostly focused in the the Bering Strait region of the far far North Pacific, and they have a number of uh, of sort of tragedies that unfold with uh, getting locked into ice in ways actually that that are kind of uh, reminiscent of some of the challenges of voyaging into the Arctic that I talk about in the final chapter uh, for these various uh, private and public exploring expeditions to the Arctic. Um, so one reason is that it was no longer uh, necessary to invest in these naval exploring expeditions because the global empire of commerce had changed and transformed. And, you know, there's a, there's a global U.S. empire of commerce that's more based upon uh, you know, market trading and stocks and, and uh, investment in sort of dollars as opposed to as much in actual blue water shipping. 
uh, the whaling industry, which was a driver for things like the XX, that really kind of declines. So practically in that regard, it was no longer necessary to embark in, in these quite as much. Um, and then I also suggest that it was no longer as necessary diplomatically. So the U.S. in the 1850s, we start seeing a lot of accolades uh, calling the United States a great power uh, in the mid-19th century. And so in some sense, it was no longer a necessary vehicle for achieving the end goals that it, that it had been designed to, to do. I should note that the U.S. Navy does engage in uh, exploring expeditions uh, and various big diplomatic expeditions. So there are some to the Arctic. There's one to West Africa in the 1880s. Uh, there's one to Korea that kind of mirrors the uh, Perry's Japan expedition. Uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're nothing quite like what we see in the antebellum period. So that's that's why they they, they drop off in large measure. Um, and if I had 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 more time and resources, I might have tried to continue the story a little bit about its lingering uh, influences into the late 19th century, building up to the the Spanish-American War. So, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, is as a young man, he's somebody who's reading uh, quite a bit about uh, British exploration of Africa, uh, and you know, we have you know some evidence that he was also reading about Alicia Kent Kane, who is a key figure for the final chapter about Arctic exploration as well. So, there are ways in which some of these these things certainly live on and shape American culture, and I talk quite a bit about that. Uh, but yes, there's very limited public monuments to naval exploration. There's a couple uh, across the country to naval explorers. Uh, but really, uh, what I suggest is that it was no longer useful. Huh. No longer useful. What an interesting... <laughs> Can you imagine to some of the characters um, you detail early on in this um, being told, oh, that wouldn't be useful anymore? Um, I mean, they certainly seem to have gotten a lot of rejection. Uh, so... Who knows how they would have responded towards the later period? Right. Well, a number of them are dead, but but yeah, a lot of them, uh, yeah, they, they would not have liked that answer whatsoever. They would have hoped uh, that there would have been a, a great continuation of what they had sought to establish as a tradition. Mm. Well, in terms of legacy, um, the book, obviously, as we've been talking about so far, is historical. Um but I was wondering if there's anything you think might be relevant um, to listeners in today's world to think about. Yeah, wonderful. Um, well, it, it can take uh, a long time for scholarship um, in academia to really reach um, what's taught in elementary school and high schools and digested by the general public. So instead of reflecting back on uh, my early education, I had mentioned at the, at the start of our talk how the education about American history that I received was very closeted, very domesticated, uh, and very isolationist in many ways. And actually, my, my early love was, was not American history, but was ancient history. Um, I had a big interest in the Civil War period, but I was really interested in learning about other parts of the world growing up. And I think that was partly a reflection of, of uh, some of the education I had you know, earlier um, and I think that isolationist U.S. history results in a pretty isolationist U.S. foreign policy, um, that uh, part of the, the dictums of U.S. exceptionalism is that there's really no need to study or learn about other parts of the world, that the U.S. is distinctive, that it's uninfluenced by the larger world, it's a beacon of liberty, and if anything, the rest of the world should be learning from us. We should, we should be bringing what we know about ourselves to other peoples, but they don't have to necessarily learn about, about the United States um, and I hope that, that reading about and um, getting engaged with 
uh, a history that reflects the very real globalized and internationalist uh, histories of the past uh, will encourage U.S. citizens and, and other peoples as well to uh, see the United States as as part of uh, a very, very global, engaged international story, and therefore, uh, hopefully, visioning uh, a, a future uh, where the world is, is inextricably linked uh, with other aspects of uh, other corners of the globe and linked with global affairs. So while that, that history of U.S. internationalism uh, is not always the best record. There's really some very, very dark stains in the history of American involvement in global affairs. Uh, I would hope uh, that a study of, of past histories of engagement would encourage uh, U.S. citizens and statesmen and diplomats and, and, uh, and others across the world to really be able to be willing to write a brighter and a better chapter about U.S. involvement and world affairs for the future. That the United States has been involved in the world for better or for worse for a long time. Uh, so it's not a question of being able to cut the United States off from the rest of the world. But what will that chapter of engagement, what will the future chapters actually look like? And I, I hope that uh, that will be a, a message that uh, will resonate uh, and reach uh, a general public and will reach people uh, in positions of power to be able to write those new and hopefully brighter chapters, not imperialist chapters, but other chapters about deep engagement in the rest of the world. Winnie, with that very sort of outward looking um, message, I'm wondering if I can ask you maybe two uh, more, I suppose, behind the scenes, I guess, questions um, about your work, particularly, uh, given what you've shared with us so far. Um, This is always interesting when one goes into the archives and finds so much. And of course, you can never put everything into a book. Is there anything in particular that you came across um, in the process of researching or writing the book that you found surprising? That's a great question. Uh, There were were numerous surprises. Um, And probably the one that I I keep coming back to that I'm still uh, very much moved by is that I, in the Library of Congress uh, manuscript division, I came across a letter from a woman named Mary Blackford. And Mary Blackford was a relative of Matthew Fontaine Morris. And Morris was the one uh, who was promoting this, this pro-slavery expansion in South America. And um, she was writing a letter in response to uh, one of his published pamphlets. And by, by this point, Maury, uh has uh, really kind of taken the cat out of the bag in the sense that he's, he's pretty clear about what his goals are for the Amazon in terms of expanding slavery. Um, and this cousin of his, Blackford, uh, read uh, a pamphlet that he wrote about the Valley of the Amazon and its future. And um, she, she writes, I, I, I have a, a transcription of it. The first part I read of enthusiasm, my whole heart dilated with pleasure. How proud I was that the same blood flowed in our veins. But when I came to the part about perpetuating slavery in a land where it has been abolished, of opening a new and lucrative trade in human beings, with all the separation of husbands and wives, mother and child, all the numberless ills that flow from slavery and the slave trade, my heart sickened. Yes, if a heart could bleed, mine did when I thought that one so near me had proposed this mighty wrong, the greatest of all wrongs, the degradation of the human soul. And I really just found that immensely powerful that somebody in his own family had so eloquently challenged him 
about what he was seeking to do uh, there. And um, it's striking when one comes across uh, such bright people who have uh, such incredible moral failures. And so seeing that play out in front of me in the archive was a pretty powerful experience. I can imagine. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And if I can prevail upon you to share one more thing, uh, the book is obviously out now. It's available for people to read. So might there be something you're working on next that we can get a sneak preview of? Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Um, I very consciously left out one of these big expeditions. It's actually the biggest of all of these 17 antebellum U.S. naval exploring expeditions. uh, And that is the the North Pacific Exploring Expedition. So there was a a really massive expedition to chart the entire North Pacific Rim. And actually, they define North Pacific Rim uh, pretty broadly. They they start actually down in in Indonesia, uh, and then they go up uh, the parts of the coast of China, Japan, the Pacific uh, Russian coast, uh, through sort of parts of the Bering Sea, uh, and then back to uh, San Francisco. But between uh, 1853 and 1855, there is this really massive expedition that the U.S. Navy sends out to chart this entire trajectory. Uh, And in some ways, it's almost like completing the circle that the XX did. The XX was very focused on the South Pacific uh, and the the West Coast of North America. Here's one to complete the other uh, side of the Pacific world. Uh, And to my knowledge, this was the largest voyage of discovery ever dispatched by any Western power in this age of sail and steam. So it was six vessels. It was something like over 500 men and officers were involved in this. It's a really a massive government enterprise. And it cooperated uh, very closely with Commodore Matthew Calvert Perry's mission to Japan. So uh, the Japan expedition of 1850 to 1854 signs this Treaty of Kanagawa uh, that um is uh, an opening sort of salvo and in, in so-called opening Japan. Japan already has uh, ways in which it's, it's already engaged with the rest of the world, but it's just selective about who it's engaging with. So the Treaty of Kanagawa sort of opens that uh, to an extent, but then there's the North Pacific Exploring Expedition that arrives in Japanese waters really right on the heels of that, and they're going to be testing the limits of the Treaty of Kanagawa and really... Um, uh, kind of deplorable ways, frankly, but but nonetheless, they're they're there to really try to extend the provisions of the treaty as far as possible uh, in charting and surveying the coastline of of Japan and then going further beyond that. So what I'm I'm interested in writing is a history of that expedition, and I, I very consciously left it out of the first book, um, and I'm thinking that an overall argument might be something like. While the 1850s is often portrayed as the decade of expansionist failures, that's only really the case if you're looking at the Western Hemisphere uh, and you're focused on you know, these sort of failed filibustering expeditions in Nicaragua or Cuba. Um, but if you look globally, actually the 1850s is a pretty astounding imperial decade for the United States, uh, particularly that the Japan expedition was not simply a one-off or a preview of, of the Blue Water Navy of Teddy Roosevelt of the 1880s, 1890s. But actually, uh, it was part of a larger push into East Asian markets that we see at this North Pacific expedition as well. So this is a, a, one of these expeditions that, uh, to go back to your earlier question about you know, why this disappeared and why so little is known about this, uh, they were going to write a big narrative like the XX, the commander of the XX, Charles Wilkes, did. And they were going to have you know, vast amounts of scientific specimens for display. But very clearly, the Civil War interrupts that. 
So instead of uh, true narratives, that there's one in German that's never been translated, and there's one by an officer uh, in English, but aside from those two, there's no published uh, works from the period about the expedition. And instead, we have 84 archival volumes uh, of ship logs and letters and journals and all kinds of naval correspondence, other documents, but they, they haven't really gone, been gone through. So that's, that's my next project. And uh, I'm really pretty excited to, uh, to continue this area uh, of research. And I view them a little bit as used and a part as being a sequel almost for the first book. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and best of luck diving through all of those logs and notes. Um, and while you are off doing that, um, listeners can read, I guess, the first book in the series, which we've been talking about, again, titled A Great and Rising Nation, Naval Exploration and Global Empire in the Early U.S. Republic. Dr. Michael A. Verney, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about it. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thank you for the really great questions.